The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and today I want to tell you a story. It is a great story. It's a story that I have devoted some of my academic career to unearthing, and it's about Creole languages. Many Creole languages are spoken in the Caribbean, and so, of course, that brings on our first song cue. This is Lena Horne and, believe it or not, Ricardo Montalban of Fantasy Island fame, and they were in a Broadway show in 1956, and it was called Jamaica, and here they are singing, I Don't Think I'll End It All Today. Let's open with this. When I see the world and its wonders, what is there to say? I don't think, oh no, I don't think I'll end it all today. Fish in sea and sun in the heavens, sailboat in the bay. I don't think, oh no, I don't think I'll end it all today. So many sweet things still on my list. So many sweet lips still to be kissed. So many sweet dreams still to unfold. So many sweet lies still to be told. Anyway, the story that I want to tell involves slavery, but the truth is, slavery created endless linguistic victories. If there's anything good that came out of slavery, it's that a lot of language flowered, despite the fact that people were in circumstances where they were suddenly rendered inarticulate because they weren't being taught the language that they were being dominated in and that they often needed to use to speak to one another. Africa is home to as many as a thousand languages, and slaves were brought from many different places. So, as often as not, slaves were on plantations where they could only talk to a few people in a native language, and very quickly, the language that you associated with the place, with your very unfortunate new life, was the dominant, usually European language. So you're talking about linguistic deprivation that was turned into linguistic victory. And so a linguistic tool that was born of brute necessity amid sociological distance has become the thriving native languages of millions of people all over this world. And what I want to concentrate on is the English-based creoles of this kind. We usually hear them called patois, or as Americans we know about Gullah. Or you might know people who speak Guyanese. All of these things are based on the same pattern. And in fact, as I will give you the argument for, they can be argued to be the same thing. And so, those languages and ones elsewhere in the world that seem oddly like them, and in fact, once again, are them, once we learn this really interesting story, where do they come from? Where did all of that start? Well, you know where it all actually started? It was not Jamaica. It was not Barbados. It was almost certainly along the West African coast itself. And through a series of deductions and from looking at the way all the languages are, you can deduce that the place where these languages would have emerged, where the granddaddy language would have emerged, would not have been the steppes of Ukraine, not Proto-Indo-European. These languages would have started on the coast of Ghana. And where they would have started is in slave castles, So what was going on was that along many parts of the West African coast, the European powers established these basically forts 
where they gathered material for sale elsewhere, and where they came to also gather slaves in preparation for transporting them across the sea. So you had many, many of these slave castles, one of them in Ghana, not one of the biggest ones, but one of them, and one of the very first ones was called Cormantin. Cormantin was founded in 1632. What you had was Englishmen who were yoked into serving in this tropical location, and this tended to be Englishmen of the lower classes. Often you were sent to a place like this because you were desperate or because of some sort of penalty. It was like people who were later sent to Australia. So they're there. And then Africans were brought in to do the hardest and nastiest work. And so it would be Africans from the surrounding area. But then they would also, because there were often only so many who would put up with that or who were being forced to do that, they would often bring in Africans from other parts of the West African coast to serve in these castles. So you have a situation where you've got whites who speak English and you've got Africans who are living separately and thinking separately, really have no reason to associate with these whites in any real way. The whites have no real interest in the Africans. And sometimes you had Africans speaking completely different languages themselves in these groups. So this is the sort of situation where people make do by creating kind of a makeshift lingo. So if an Englishman wanted to tell an African to do something or an African wanted to tell an Englishman, you know, why he probably didn't want to do it, you did it in some sort of makeshift language. And as often as not, it would be a makeshift version of the socially dominant language, in this case, English. Here was a place where what was going on at first was not sending slaves overseas. They wanted the slaves to stay there. But the idea was to gather gold. This is why this area of the West African coast is called the Gold Coast, and also elephant tusks, unfortunately. But there was lots of work to be done. And what would have happened here is that a pigeon, P-I-D-G-I-N, not but a pigeon, would have been born right here, some kind of English makeshift language. And people used it a lot. And you know, if people use a pigeon a lot, then it has a way of kind of gelling, kind of like when you put peach jello in the refrigerator. At first, it's liquid. Go in there a couple hours later, and it's in this in-between state. You don't want to eat it yet, but still, you could mess around with it with your fingers. It's kind of semi-jello. That is the equivalent of a pigeon. That would have developed there and almost certainly did. But here's the thing. Here's where the story begins. At first, the slaves are supposed to be working there, but sometimes they would send slaves overseas to work the newly developing plantation economies, which were all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. So here's a situation where a language that started in Ghana, where they're dealing with this gold and these elephant tusks and, you know, other goods, ends up being used somewhere where nobody had ever heard of it before and you would never expect that it would be used. And the first place that the English started making into a plantation economy was the island of Barbados. I did work about 25 years ago. As you all know, I get obsessed with things, and I got obsessed with this. And I dug, and I dug in archives in London. And what I found, among other things, was evidence that these castle slaves actually were sometimes transported across the sea to Barbados itself, and they would have taken this makeshift new language with them. 
you can dig through things that people in these godforsaken castles wrote back to London. It's interesting. If you look at the documents, one thing you see is lists of people there, and there is often a cross next to somebody's name, and that means that that person died. Very often it was a death sentence to come to places like this from England because you just didn't have the constitution, you weren't used to the germs, etc. And then you get these notes that describe these miserable places, but they're also doing business. And so, for example, there's one note where London has asked people at Cormanton, please send 12 of our own blacks such as can speak English. Now, at the time, they were talking about St. Helena, which is a whole different story. But still, the idea was, please send some of these people contrary to your usual rule. Or you end up seeing that the people in London are constantly saying, don't sell the slaves overseas which, of course, directly indicates that that's what had happened. So we can be quite sure that this is something that happened and started happening pretty early. Next thing you knew, the slaves who did get sent in that way, they certainly would have been taking whatever language they were using to talk to these white people with them, except then they're in these new places talking to other white people. And next thing you know, you have the transplantation of this pigeon, spoken first at Cormanton Castle that nobody's ever heard of, and now all of a sudden it's across the ocean in the New World being used by people in a new place and then being passed on to new generations. For example, four main places that this would have been taken is first Barbados. Barbados was kind of the foundation colony. And today in Barbados, there's what we call a patois spoken. That is today's descendant of what would have been brought from all the way over in Ghana. You had plantations in Barbados, but Barbados, God love it, but it's about the size of a parking lot. And so after a while, the rapaciousness of capitalism means that you want to have more plantations in Barbados. Won't do. And so there were planters who packed up with their slaves and went to other places. One of them was Jamaica. Another one for the record was South Carolina. And next thing you know, you have West Indian Patois spoken in South Carolina, although we call it Gullah, we don't call it Patois. Then Suriname. Suriname is up on the top rim of South America, the very southern Caribbean. And Suriname is a tropical place. It has a rainforest, but on the coast, you could establish plantations. They will tell you about Dutch because that is the formal language of the country. But what they won't mention at first is that they also speak as a vernacular language, as a lingua franca for everybody in Suriname. They speak something called Sranan, and I've talked about that on the show before. But Sranan is this creole, and it is the purest rendition of how all these languages began. Somebody from Suriname will be surprised that you've ever heard of Sranan. So what is this Sranan? Because we barely hear it in the United States. The number of people in the United States who speak it probably number in about the hundreds and they're spread all out. So Sranan, what is that? Well, it's this language where the words are mostly from English, although of course a lot of Dutch has crept in over the centuries. But the grammar, the way the words are put together is partly English, but a lot of it is African. And so it's this brand new language. It's a language that did not exist until the late 1600s. And the way for us to engage it is to see somebody speaking it instead of me just talking about it or faking it. So what we're going to listen to is this woman who is doing her hair and she's doing it speaking her native language, which is Srana. This is the first time I've been here for 5 days. 
Dus zou het doen voor zich, wat praten we hier voor Jesse na Jesse. So you can hear that this is certainly not English, even though the words are from English. And so at one point she says, listen to her when she talks about this is an old wash and go. This is an old wash and go. First of all, she says, this not this is DC is the whole word. If you asked her, how do you say this in Sranang? She would say DC. But you say this because this language has regular contractions, just like we're more likely to say didn't than did not. So this was once a pidgin, but it became a creole. It became a real language. That's what a creole is. It's a pidgin that becomes a real language. And therefore, you have the kinds of complications that you have in languages that somebody lives a whole life in. This is an old wash and go. This not, and then there's that na. Well, why is that is? Well, na is what happened over time as people said the word da over and over again. There are actually earlier documents of Sranang where you can see that the word is still da. Da was short for dati. Dati was from that. So it used to be you would say this, that's an old wash and go. And then after a while, the that became basically an is. And so this na, one old wash and go, like that. Then she says kandet. That's maybe. And so, can, and then de is this word for be, which again is nothing like our be, it's just something different. Then, listen to her here. Four day, five days, so. Four days, five days or so. Then, listen to this little bit. This, sao do fosi. She says, sao do fosi. Sao do fosi. Well, what in the world is that? Sa is short for sani. Sani is from something. Sa means what? So what we're going to do first, sa, u, o, du, u is we, what we, o is short for go, what we're going to do. So sa, o, du, du, that's easy, fosi from first. So sa, o, du, fosi, she says very quickly in her language, as we would say, well, what we're going to do first, that's what that means. Then she talks about parting her hair and she says, weedy, weedy, that's from weeds. And so the word for hair in Sranan happens to come from a word that began for meaning wiry plants. And so weedy. And then from ear to ear and notice yesi. Yesi na yesi. Yesi, that's from ears. Ears. You hear a British person say ears and it's not your language and they're speaking a dialect of English that we've never heard. And so yes, yes, yesi. Yesi, yesi, yesi. That's an African person rendering the way a person speaking vernacular British would have said ears. So it's this whole language. It's a language just like English itself. That is the purest version. That is what would have been brought across the seas for the most part. And you know what ears reminds me of? Feet. Another part of the body that comes in pairs. You know what I'm about to do. And just because I feel like it, I want to share with you, your feet's too big. This is an old Fats Waller song. He does it wonderfully. But you know, in the Broadway musical Ain't Misbehavin', the Broadway musical review, Ken Page actually outdid Waller. Everybody should hear this, whether they like the show music stuff on this show or not. This is Ken Page doing Your Feet's Too Big. Your pedal extremities are colossal. <laughs> To me, you look just like a fossil. You got me walking, talking, and squawking. All your feet stupid. Can't go nowhere with you, cause your feet's too big. Can't get in the bed. 
face to you Cause your feet's too big Look at them Look at them spread all across the floor ah, When you go and die Ain't nobody gonna sob Undertaker's gonna have quite a job <laughs> You gonna look funny when they lay in the castle <laughs> Look at them big feet Sticking up out the basket All oh, your feet's too Anyway, I've talked about Suriname Creoles on this show before. Saramakan is a version that's spoken in the rainforest by slaves who were fortunate enough to get away from the plantations on the coast and go somewhere else and live just with one another. But before they escaped, they had worked on plantations that were owned not by Englishmen, but by Portuguese Jewish people. I kid you not. So remember those Ottomans that we talked about a couple shows ago? Well, the Spanish are getting rid of the Muslims because they don't like those Ottomans. And they're getting rid of Jewish people because they don't like them either. Where did the Jewish people go? Well, we talked about how some of them went and formed these Ladino-speaking enclaves. That was something that you could do. But there were other Jews who left Iberia and went to other places. Some of them crossed the ocean and went to Brazil because Brazil, for a long time, was owned by the Dutch. And so they were having peaceable lives there. But whoops, then the Portuguese take over Brazil. Can't live there anymore. And so they go northward. And one of the first places they go is another one of these little regions up on top of South America, French Guiana. And to this day, the Creole language spoken in French Guiana, although it's a French Creole because of the history of that colony, has hints of Portuguese in it. And the reason is because of these wandering Jews, so to speak. And next, they kept going west to Suriname and they formed these plantations. And so what happened is that they got some slaves from the English who were speaking this Suriname, but they hung around long enough that the Suriname on their plantations ended up being impregnated by lots of Portuguese. And so you end up getting this Portuguesified, this lucified, as you call it, Suriname, which then gets taken into the rainforest. And that's what Saramakan is. You never know how these things are going to go. And then here is the coolest story. Talk about Jamaica. In Jamaica, for the most part, you have this original language that settles in, but then it's mixed with English a lot. So it isn't that the Dutch are running things and nobody hears English again after the 1660s. Instead, in Jamaica, English is always part of the mix. And so you've got lots of people speaking various Englishes, and then you have the original African Creole language that comes in, but it gets mixed in with English. It's influenced by English such that if you see a movie like The Harder They Come, they'll have subtitles here and there, but you maybe didn't absolutely need them. And if you listen to Running Jamaican Patois, the feeling that you often have is this is English that I can't understand. Whereas if you listen to that Sranon clip with the girl, you, you don't get the feeling you're listening to anything you've ever heard. You might think it's just you know some African language. With Jamaican, it's kind of English, but very different. But here's something really interesting. The way people talk when they are in trances or, you know, perhaps we might say narcotically influenced, if this is culturally determined, often those ways of speaking are earlier. They are from another time as opposed to the way speech is now. And if you examine the way Jamaicans who live off in the mountains have lived traditionally rather separate existences talk 
in ceremonial circumstances like this. They speak a very different kind of Jamaican. And the damnedest thing is, and it took an anthropologist, Ken Bilby, to notice this. You have to really immerse yourself in a culture to find something like this. It turns out that what these men speak in what we might call a trance in these ceremonies, this passed down the centuries with nobody thinking a thing of it, is Sranang. Now, I'm oversimplifying, but what these people are speaking is clearly the original layer of what became today's English Jamaican patois. It's the most fantastic thing. And so, for example, in Sranang, the way that you would say, take him to that big place and put him inside, is this. Take him to that big place is Chaingo. So, Carry him go. Cha is from carry. Kyari, kyari, cha, cha, cha. So, cha go. Carry him go to the big place. Na a biggie pressy. So, cha go na a biggie pressy. Hear how you can kind of get the basics of Sranang if we do it this way, just because the word shapes are pretty familiar. So, carry him go to the big place. Cha go na a biggie pressy. Carry him go inside. Take him inside. Cha go na ini. Okay. Now, in Jamaican patois, that sentence might sound kind of like that, except with a very different accent and with some slight structural differences. It would be that patois that sounds so cool to us, but we don't think that it's not English. But in Maroon spirit language, listen to this. Carry him go into the big place in Sranan. Chaingo na bigi presi. In Maroon spirit language, chaingo na da bigi pre. It's the same thing. Or carry him go inside. Chaingo na ini. Okay. In Maroon spirit language, it's the same language. Now, of course, they're not exactly alike because it's been a very long time. But Maroon spirit language is Sranan. And so Sranan is still spoken in Jamaica in that circumstance as evidence. It's a kind of fossil footprint of what language was originally brought to Jamaica and then ended up mixing in with English. And there are similar kinds of situations. And so, for example, in Barbados, it's often said that they speak the most standardish patois. Their patois is closest to English. For better or for worse, they often pride themselves on speaking something that isn't as far from English as you might hear in Jamaica or other places. But the truth is, if you go and interview elderly, very rural Barbadians, Bajans, as one actually says, then it was discovered in the 80s. I don't think these people are around anymore, but it was discovered in the 80s that they speak something much less like English, and they don't speak something like this maroon spirit language, as it's called in Jamaica, but they spoke something that was much more creole So there was an original situation that's been effaced to a large extent today, but you can still find the evidence. And this language ended up having a Jamaican or Barbadian-like fate in various places. And so Guyanese, sometimes it's called Creolese, Guyanese, that is the same thing that ended up taking root in Guyana. There's the same thing in Belize. There's the same thing even in Nicaragua, where the history is such that you have Spanish as the formal language spoken. You learn that in school. But among many people in Nicaragua, these are the quote-unquote Creole people. They are from a migration from the island Caribbean a long time ago. And what they speak is what they call English. And many of them do speak English. It depends on their life circumstances. But really, the lingua franca among them is something very much like Jamaican Creole. So you learn Spanish as you get older and you go to school and you start understanding what you're hearing on TV. But I remember one when I was in a Creole-speaking village in Nicaragua, and I 
was not raised with Patois. I was raised in Philadelphia speaking boring old English. And this cute little girl came up to me and she said, Why you name? And I said, What? And she said, Why you name? And I just turned and I asked, I asked somebody, What is she saying? And it turned out she was saying, Why you name? What's your name? She was basically speaking deep Jamaican to me. That was the only language she spoke at her probably three years old. She was being very friendly. But all I heard was just this, why you in there? And that's because she was speaking a very different language. She was speaking this West Indian English patois, and that was in Nicaragua. Cute little girl. Her name began with T. I don't remember the rest of it. That language gets spread throughout the Caribbean. It takes root in each place and becomes a new version of this thing in each place. And it depended on what was going on, what actually came out linguistically. So for example, that original language that emerged in Ghana, in its purest form in the New World, that exists today only in Suriname. West Indian Patois is something that most of us have probably heard in some form. You may have trouble understanding it, but you also may have trouble processing it as not English. It seems like something in between. That's because in those places, this original language from Ghana has always existed mixed in with English. But things were different in Suriname. Suriname was a British colony for about 10 seconds in the mid-1600s, and then the Dutch took over. It was an interesting exchange, actually. The Dutch take Suriname, and then there's a Dutch colony elsewhere that the English take, and that was New York. And so that's why New Amsterdam became New York. So there was a trade. Here in the United States, frankly, we only think about that, but the trade meant that the Dutch got Suriname, this plantation colony. So what that meant was that this language that had been transported from Ghana to this colony got to stay the way it was. It hasn't been existing all mixed in with English for the past several centuries. Instead, it stayed more or less the way it was then in terms of its basic structure. So some questions that might have come up at this point. How do we know that all of those varieties have the same father language? How do we know that they're all the same thing? Because really, you might think, okay, you are... African, you are in a plantation setting, you're learning English on the fly, only orally, you know, there's no such thing as Rosetta Stone or Berlitz in these settings. And so wouldn't you expect that from place to place, people would come up with similar solutions? And so in one place, the word for dog is dagu, that's in Suriname. Well, Wouldn't you expect that maybe somebody would call a dog a dagu somewhere else, too? It's just kind of natural, because African languages tend to have that consonant-vowel, consonant-vowel, and so tokimata, so dagu instead of dog, that sort of thing. Wouldn't they all come out the same way? But the truth is, yes, there would be similarities. So if you are exposed to about 500 words of English and nobody gives you any grammar, there are certain things that your different renditions are going to have in common. But... There is things that you'll generally have in common, and then there are idiosyncrasies. For example, I have had occasion, I was sitting on a plane, and I saw a native speaker of Guyanese, Creole, start having a conversation with a native speaker of Gullah from South Carolina. Now, they were sitting there talking, and you know, looking into their eyes, I could see that they were missing a thing or two here and there. But they were basically like a Swede talking to a Norwegian. 
And the reason that they could communicate was because they were, like Swedes and Norwegians, speaking variations on the same language. And to pull the camera in a little closer, the way that you know that Guyanese and Gullah are based on the same thing is the same way that you know how, for example, groups of animals are related to each other. For example, dinosaurs. You, know, you think, well, what do all dinosaurs have in common? Well, they were big fuckers. But, you know, a lot of dinosaurs were quite small. So then you think, well, you know, they were, and try from there. If they weren't all big, then, well, they were just old. But there were a lot of old things. How do you know something is a dinosaur? What is it that a Tyrannosaurus and a Brontosaurus have in common other than that they were big and old, especially when there were Tyrannosauruses that were the size of that little girl in Nicaragua? It's not just the size and it's not just the old. And it's usually these very boring things. Like there are things about their bones that are so dull that you talk about it and people in the next room go to sleep. But in one of their ankle bones, there's this weird little concave hole. And that hole is there to take the fibula. You know, that that leg bone that's kind of crappy and it's next to the better one, the tibia that seems like a real leg bone. You know, when you're eating a chip, the fibula is that bad one. Well, there's this little concave hole that takes the fibula. All dinosaurs have that in common. Some shitty creature back in the Triassic happened to have that trait for God knows what reason, and that got passed on to everything that that creature became. Or for those of you who like rocks, you know, there'll be some isotope of some atom, and that's how you can trace where it came from. Languages are like that, and so how you decide that there was a father language that then became a bunch of other languages is often some little ankle depression. And so, for example, in these Creoles, there are things that are just so specific, so quirky, that they must all have come from the same thing because this quirky thing couldn't have happened by chance in all of them. So, for example, there's the way they use the word self. These English Creoles almost all use the word self where we would use even. In Sronan, if you want to say, he even had another horse, the way you say it is, he had another horse self. Now, we would never use self that way. And why self is used that way is a whole other story, but it just is. And so, ah, ben abi one trasi sefi. He been have one other horse self. Now, if just Suranam did that, then you'd figure, well, that's this weird thing that goes on in Suriname for some reason. But then in Guyanese, it's he got one next horse self, that same self. Jamaican, imha one next horse self. And it just goes all over the place, the same thing. In South Carolina today, there are people in the Sea Islands who are saying he even had another horse, if they choose to say that. And it's iha horsef. So it's always that self. So basically, however that self happened, that's something that would only have happened once. That is the little depression in the ankle bone. That tells you that there was some original language where that choice was made because of the alignment of the planets. And now all the languages have it because they're just carrying it along like we human beings have tailbones in there because it doesn't hurt anything. There are a whole lot of things like that in these languages that show that they're not all just something that started as non-native English. There's something that started as one rendition 
of non-native English that now is many different ones. So that's a little lesson for you in how historical linguists, as we call it, figure out how the languages of the world are related. Creoles can be applied to that just like any other language. Then how do you know it's from Africa? So I'm talking about how almost certainly this language emerged on the West African coast. Well, how do you know? Well, one way that you know is things in the languages. And so, for example, one of the most peculiar things about all of these English Creoles is the way they do you in the plural. So I will be something we recognize. You might be you. We is going to be we, or as we saw, it might be something like ooh. And then they is going to be day or dare or something like that. But then for plural you, English, of course, doesn't have one. But none of these languages are satisfied with that. But they come up with a solution we'd never expect. The word is unu. It's this completely un-English word. Sometimes it's una. Sometimes it's hana. Sometimes it's wuna, but it's clearly all variations on the same very non-English word. So I remember once I was, um, was in a barbershop, and it was a black barbershop, because I'm black. And they had magazines, and the magazines were for black people. And one of the magazines was Essence. And the other magazine was something I didn't want to read. I forget why. So I figured I'm going to just have to read an issue of Essence. Essence is a, is a, a woman's magazine. It's marketed as that. But one thing they had in it was lots of ads for food and cooking. And one of them said, Una go love the Lowry seasoning. Una go love the Lowry seasoning. They were doing a South Carolina thing. They were emphasizing its southern roots. Una go, that meant you all are going to love Lowry seasoning. And it comes out that way in Creole after Creole. So in, for example, Sranan, our Creole feature for the day, I is me. You is you. He, she, and it are ah. That's a whole other story. We, ooh. They, day. You all, unu. And you just find that in Creole after Creole. Not every single one of them, because life is sloppy, but it's there. Well, what's unu? Well, it certainly is in English, and it's not any other kind of English. There's no regional English that's been discovered where people are saying unu instead of you when they're talking about y'all. People say y'all, they say youans, they just say you and let it be confusing. They do not say, what, mate? Oh, no. There is no such thing. But then you think, well, it must be from all those African languages. But the thing is, those African languages are all as different from one another as English is from German is, frankly, from Italian. You've got massive differences as you move along that coast. And if you look at what languages have what for plural you, the only language along that coast that has unu, and one of them does, is Igbo. And that's spoken in the southeast of Nigeria. There is no language that instead has like ono or ono or anything like it. It's a completely different word in Chui, in Fongpe, in Yoruba. You go up and down the coast, there's only one unu, and it's in Igbo. Now, the funny thing is, the Igbos were not dominant in terms of the composition of slaves on plantations in English colonies. The Chui often were or often the Congo, from much further down on the coast, often were. But numerically, Igbos were never especially dominant, and more to the point. You hate to get into these things, but in terms of the very different African people who were brought to plantations, often there were senses that people from one place had 
tendencies in terms of personality or what have you that people from other places didn't. And there's a whole lot of fiction in all of this, but no one ever said that the Igbos were dominant. That was said constantly about the Chui, for example, and the Congo, but not the Igbos. They, in terms of how they were depicted, didn't, God knows why, didn't like being slaves. That was not something that they adjusted to gracefully. I think we can all understand that. But that means that it wasn't that there were Igbos all over the Caribbean who were dominant and therefore imposing their word for y'all. And especially why would it be just that word? Why that same word from place to place? This then is that dinosaur ankle thing. That is something that would have only happened once. We may never know exactly why the Igbo contributed the word to y'all in all of these languages. But what we can know is that it means that there was just one language at first that happened to make that choice. And that would almost certainly have only been up on the West African coast because Igbo is spoken in the area where the English had the most of these slave castles. And there's even some evidence. It's just a of evidence, but there's some evidence that castle slaves were sometimes taken from over in Igbo territory and brought into Ghana. Just a squeak, but that would have, for example, maybe meant that these people realize that this English doesn't have a plural U and a normal language does, and the Igbos had Unu, and maybe Unu is fun to say, and so that winds up in it. Or in general, not to take you too far into the weeds, but if you look at that African coast, start way up in Mali, and you make your way down to Angola, all the way down. Not only are you dealing with dozens of languages, but the languages are very, very different. There is no such thing as an African language template. They divide into four different families, at least, and the families are as different as Japanese and English are. And what's interesting is that all of these Creoles, you've got Gullah, Guyanese, Sranang, all of them, have a basic grammatical pattern that involves, for example, this business of carry him, go in there. Cha and go. So not carry him in there, but you say carry and then go. You string verbs together in that way. That's something that only happens on one part of the West African coast. It's the stretch from Ghana, actually, through Nigeria. Go west of that, and you lose that whole structure. Go east of that, and you've got a whole different way of being a language. There are certain West African languages that, for some reason, have a grammar a lot like Chinese. I've actually heard that Africans from that area actually find Chinese much easier than people almost anywhere in the world. And there's a reason. If you know somebody from Nigeria who speaks Yoruba, Yoruba is almost alarmingly like Chinese in many ways. So it's right there. And the verbs strung together is only one of many things. All the Creoles have that, despite that slaves from all over that coast were brought to the New World. So if slaves were brought from Senegal and Liberia and Angola and all these different places, why is it that the structure of the languages is always that kind of Chinesey way that languages like Chui and Yoruba are? It's because the language originally arose up there and then was brought to the Caribbean. So you see, we've got a kind of a detective story here. Being a linguist can sometimes be being a detective. So we're getting near the end of the story, but there's more. There's a whole other direction, but you know, it's time for a break. And talk about Unu. There is one witty Creolist who has said that maybe Unu came from you and you. 
you and you. And he was only kidding. And no, it didn't come from you and you. But on the subject of you and you, you know, call me Elizabeth Warren. I have a song for that. This is Steve from Married with Children, David Garrison, in his Broadway singer phase, which came after he left that show and also was before it. This is Nasty Political Gershwin. This is Gershwin's ugly, sour political musical that actually culminates in a virtual beheading. The musical is called Let Him Eat Cake. This is a song called Down With Everything That's Up. This is political. This is very early 30s. It's very Dorothy Day. Conditions as they are cannot go very far. The world must move and I am here to move it. The brotherhood of man is crying for a plan. So here's my plan, I know you can't improve it. Conditions as they are, cannot go very far. So listen to his plan for man. Down, 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 down. Down with one and one make two. Down with everything in view. Down with all majorities, likewise all minorities. Down with you and you and you. Down with one and two make three, down with all of us as here. Somehow I abominate everything you nominate. Everything from babies into best That's the torch we're going to get the flame from. If you don't like it, why don't you go back where you came from? If you don't like it, why don't you go back where you came from? If you don't like it, why don't you go back where you came Let's tear down the House of Morgan. House of Morgan. Let's burn up the Roxy organ. Down with Curry and McCooey. Down with Chow Mein and Chop Suey. Down with music by Stravinsky. Down with shows except by Minsky. Happiness will fill our cup when it's down with everything that's up. So did you hear how there's you and you in there? So that's how I tried to tie all this together. By the way, folks, it's time for me to mention that you could have more of this show than you think there is. You could have a little tag afterwards where for a few minutes I go on about something that's often completely different from the episode or something that adds into what you've heard in the episode. And that is something that you can hear if you subscribe to what we call Slate Plus. Slate Plus is a program that you can sign up with for a nominal fee. And what you get with Slate Plus is you get this tag, like in an old sitcom, you get a little bit more, which you can't really hear in any other way. Also, you don't have to listen to any commercials. You will hear the episode continuously without those interruptions. And then not only my show, this would be with all of Slate's podcasts. So for that nominal fee, you really get an easier and fuller listen. It's kind of like better liquor. And to be honest, in these times, and you know what's different about these times, it really would help Slate out to have, quite bluntly, that nominal fee. And so not only do you get something special, but you help Slate make it through quarantine, so to speak. So try Slate Plus. You'll be glad you did. For example, this time you'll learn what Creole languages have to do with sincerity. So there's more. This part of the story is so seldom told to the general public, and it actually answers a question that I often get about these languages. Basically, you've got the Revolutionary War, and I think the the Americans won, 
But, of course, there were slaves who fought alongside the British. Well, what happened to them? Well, with a lot of them, the British resettled them. Where are you going to take them? Well, one place that they thought that these people would be happy is way up in sunny Nova Scotia. And so there were various slaves who now were not slaves anymore, and they get to live in Nova Scotia. As you can imagine, they found that a bit of an adjustment. Many stayed, but many, the next phase was they were taken across the ocean to somewhere with maybe more approachable weather, and one of those places was Sierra Leone, back on the West African coast in Freetown, the capital. Wasn't only them. In Jamaica, talk about the Maroons. These are people who resisted slavery and moved into encampments in the mountains. The Maroons kept resisting and they kept taking slaves from plantations. And as you can imagine, the whites running Jamaica didn't like this. And after a major revolt, many Maroons were transported once again to Sierra Leone. So in Sierra Leone, in Freetown, you had this mixture of people speaking early Jamaican patois and early Gullah. And that means that this language had been taken back to West Africa. The English still have their settlements all along that coast. So Sierra Leone is one place. And they train black administrators. And the black administrators speak not only English, but also this vernacular kind of English. And so this language, this Creole language that for a while in the 1700s had only been known as this Creole English of the Caribbean and the surrounding area, ended up being taken down the coast where today that same language is spoken as a vernacular variety in Ghana. Linguists call it Ghanaian Pidgin English. People in Ghana just call it broken English, which is based on a common sense that language that isn't written, language that's colloquial, is broken. And we Americans are certainly quite familiar with that. And so many Ghanaians will tell you that Ghanaian Pidgin English, as they call it, is just this sort of broken mess. But really, it's the same Creole with the same structure as Sranan, and really it's the same language as Sranan, just a different dialect. So you have Ghana, you keep going, Nigerian quote-unquote pidgin English, or what they call broken English, is that same language. You go further down to Cameroon, and you've got the exact same thing there. So there are a few lessons to learn. In Ghana and in Nigeria and in Cameroon, this language is called pidgin, as if it was the kind of peach jello that isn't ready yet. That is because there's a slip between folk terminology and scientific terminology. And just it's important to remember that even though they call this language in Nigeria, for example, pidgin, it's got the same structure. It's got a very similar grammar to Sranan, which nobody calls pidgin. Everybody in Suriname knows that it is a language of its own. So that's just the name of it, Pidgin. It is a Creole language. In terms of how linguists look at it, it's a Creole language. There is a grammatical description of Nigerian Pidgin. If you dropped it on your foot, you would probably say shit. And that's because there is a lot to describe. 
in Ghana, it's the same thing. It's not a pigeon. It is very much a Creole. And it's the oddest experience sometimes to happen to be a linguist and to happen to be a specialist in these kinds of languages to talk to actual people who, you know, often speak six languages, which is, you know, better than me. And one of them is this broken, what they're calling broken. And they'll often tell you, oh, no, it's not real language. And yet what they're speaking is fluent, nuanced command of a whole separate language. The way we think of our speech is different from the way it is. It's just like me saying, is it such a thing or a such thing that somebody writes me about every month? I have no idea. And the fact that I apparently say war, I don't know that. Well, same thing with things like this. So, not a pigeon, but people often ask me, not necessarily from Lexicon Valley, but in life, they'll say, why is it that I'm Jamaican and I can understand almost everything they're saying in Nigerian songs? Or I've had Nigerians say, I feel right at home listening to Jamaican patois. Why is that? And it's not just because both of these are cases where people had to learn English partially and then make do. It's because really they're same language. And so, for example, in Jamaican, you have this unu for y'all. In Nigerian, una. Well, of course, it's the same thing. Or, in Jamaican, he even had another horse. Imha one next herself. Next is another. In Nigerian, how do you say he even had another horse? Ibn get one other horse. Sef. That same thing. Multiply all of that, all these arbitrary little things, and what you have is variations on the same language. Now, me sitting here pretending to speak these languages isn't good enough, and so let's listen to some Nigerian pigeon. And I really enjoyed the one with the hair in Srana, and it was, I was thinking, based on the sorts of stuff that I watch my little girls watching on YouTube, I was thinking, I'll bet now in just about any language you've got people who are accoutering themselves in their native languages. And I thought, I'll bet there's a Nigerian pigeon thing where somebody is doing their hair. And there was, but I didn't want to use that. But then there's this other thing of a Nigerian pigeon speaker who is doing her makeup. And so let's listen to a little bit of what she says. These are the colors we inside the palette. These are the colors that are inside of the palette. This nadi colors with day inside the palette. That sentence alone. So these are, she says, this not right out of Sranan. It's the same language. This is this. Na for is. This not that started in Ghana. It was taken to Suriname and now it's in Lagos. Then the colors with day inside the palette. And so the colors with, and that's what, like, the man what brung me can't dance or something like that, wit. And so the colors, which, you can think of it as, de inside de palette. De is another is. This is a subtle thing about all of these creoles. So these are the colors. So what is this? These na. But if the is is about where something is, then you don't say na. You say de. All of these creoles have that exact same thing. And the word na is always either na, da, or a. They're all variations on the same word. And the word for where something is, is always, always de. And so these are the colors where de inside the palette. That's exactly the way Sranang would put it with that de. Or if we can go a little further, Mike, play, play this part where she's got this, um, this stick. So I could just stick them, apply them. Everywhere where I apply that concealer. So she says, Migo just stick them, apply them. Okay. So Migo, that go, 
is from, you know, our word, I'll, I'll give you a guess. And in early Sranan, it was go to. Now it's o in Sranan. Languages contract in different ways. In Nigerian pidgin, it's still go. But me go just stick and then stickum, applyum. And so there's no it. In almost all of these languages, you have um, and that can mean him, her, or it. So somebody in South Carolina would perfectly recognize that um as it. So, migo justikum, aplayam. So Nigerian pidgin, not only is it not a pidgin, it's a creole, but it's the same creole that's spoken in South Carolina and Suriname. Then you go down to Cameroon and you just find such interesting things. Cameroon is something we never hear anything about it. And yet, a conservative count is that there are about 150 languages, indigenous languages spoken in Cameroon, many of which have been barely described and all of which are viciously interesting. Then you have English and French as the big fat dominant European languages. Then you have this quote unquote pidgin, which is a full fledged Creole language. Often it's called Comtalk, like Cameroon talk, Comtalk. Then there's this whole other dialect of Comtalk that has a whole lot of French in it. The technical term for that is Frenchy come talk. I just made that up. But that is practically a different language because of the vocabulary. Then there's this French-English come talk mix-up. It's like French-English and come talk all had a big car accident. And that is called come franglais. And that's just this whole other thing. All of these things are what you speak as a Cameroonian. If you meet a Cameroonian, probably they speak English, they speak French, they speak Cameroonian pidgin, which they're going to call broken, but it's actually as much a language as English and French. Then they probably speak two indigenous languages. We are so vanilla in America in terms of what we think of as a normal linguistic competence. Broadway fans, no, I'm not. I don't like vanilla ice cream. And that song is to soprano. But yeah, we do need Barbara Cook. And so what I'm going to use is something I've avoided playing on this show for a long time because it really is just too much what it is. But this is the wonderful soprano Barbara Cook. If I listen to a soprano, the first one I always think of is her. And this is a song called This Kind of a Girl. It's from a show from 1961. It was called The Gay Life. It wasn't about what it sounds like. And in later productions, it's called The High Life. It's about Austrians and people wearing hats. The point here is that she's in love with a man who's more <clears throat> experienced than she is. She's a, a, a an inexperienced young girl, and he is something of a roué. And they're trying to work out what kind of relationship they're going to have. And the, the man talking here, his name is Walter Chiari. He was a matinee idol in Italy and somewhat beyond. He was horrible in this show. And actually, the lyricist for this, this is Howard Dietz's lyrics and Arthur Schwartz's songs. He said in his memoir that, unfortunately, the gay life was hobbled by a leading man who could neither act, dance, sing, nor speak English. And you could hear it. I to quote that about his English, but you can hear what he meant by the clumsiness of all this in anything that he says. But unfortunately, there's only one recording. So this is this kind of a girl. Except in her world, a girl is not afraid to give love. I'm sorry. The truth is sometimes indelicate.
something like that. All right, we'll cut it here because he keeps fucking it up. But I have always been very touched by the way Barbara Cook renders that feeling. I should fill in that the original language is no longer spoken in Ghana. It's tempting to think that this Ghanaian pidgin English is a remnant of this thing that emerged at Cormanton. But all evidence is that Ghanaian pidgin English came in when the Sierra Leone language, which today is called Creole, was transported down. Those slave castles fell into disuse, thank God, and the language that was used between Africans and Europeans there, therefore, just would have disappeared with the wind. So that language isn't spoken there anymore in that form. The closest we can get to the original form today is Sranan. But in a way, the language came back, which is just the most marvelous thing. Now, I should say, as the responsible academic that I at least try to be. There are Creolists who would disagree with some of the things that I have said here. Creole studies is academia, and academics like to disagree. Some of them, for example, would say that the language didn't arise on the West African coast. They would say that it emerged in the Caribbean on Barbados. And that's not absolutely impossible, but frankly, I consider it vanishingly unlikely. And to be even more frank, because sometimes I like to let you guys into how real life works in certain areas of my existence, I'm not sure that most Creolists have actually examined the issue closely enough to really have any strong feeling either way about West Africa or Barbados. It's an issue that I have not really propounded for about 20 years, and most Creolists have different sub-area interests than any of this touches upon. And so I feel pretty confident in telling you that this language emerged there. But many Creolists would tell you that no, that hasn't been proven. And I can't say that it's been proven, but that doesn't mean that I'm not right. In any case, also, with Barbados, it may not have been Barbados. There's some evidence that it was on a different tiny island that things first happened in the Caribbean. That different island would have been St. Kitts. I have no way at present of deciding exactly which island it was, but because we do know that South Carolina and Suriname and Jamaica were settled from Barbados. I'm keeping the story clean by just starting it there, but St. Kitts may actually have had something to do with it. And then there are all sorts of other details that I won't bother you with, or if I do, well, as Homer Simpson said, (laughs) There are perfectly good answers to those questions, but they'll have to wait for another night. Now off to bed. Anyway, folks, that's the story as I know it. It's a linguistic miracle. We only see the tip of the iceberg for it, but it started in Ghana at Cormanton. It spread through the Caribbean and beyond, and then it went back to Africa. All of those languages are the progeny of something that started in the 1640s and is still with us today as some of the world's newest languages. And, you know, we're going to go out on more of that delightful I Don't Think I'll End It All Today that I started this with. Very odd song about, you know, forswearing suicide from a Broadway musical of the 1950s. That song is by Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg. And that means that you're listening to a song written by the guys who, fewer than 20 years before, had written the score to The Wizard of Oz. And here's this song with, you know, things like second all in it. Away with the river. Away with the razor, away with the pearly gates, away with barbiturates, away with the second all, the fall from the building tall. No, I don't think I'll end it all. 
In any case, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Now lined up on my mantelpiece, almost all the flavors of Pepsi's line of bubbly brand seltzers. Cherry, raspberry, strawberry, cranberry, grapefruit, peach, mango, white ginger peach, which is completely different, pineapple, lemon, apple, lime, blueberry, pomegranate, and blackberry. Watermelon is elusive, at least in my area. This time, I'll bet they discontinued it even before they knew I liked it. I'm also still looking for orange. But Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. Thank you.